Hey, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of 200 and Counting. I'm your host, Tia Hill. This episode of the podcast, I have a very, very special documentary for you all. It's been on my mind for a really, really long time now, and I'm really, really excited to get into talking about it. But first, before we do, I want to give a slight warning. This episode does discuss issues of sexual assault, and there's also some really strong language at certain points in the episode. So just be aware of that if that's something that you're sensitive to. Now, Let's get into it. This episode's documentary is on the record. That's one of the beautiful things about the music industry. There was a lot of mobility for women, but at the same time, there was tremendous amount of sexual harassment. You didn't get a lot of sympathy for that. That was considered the price of admission. Now, this documentary came out this year at the top of the year, and it really, really made waves because not only does it focus on the music industry and the Me Too movement, but it's about the hip hop industry and the Me Too movement. And before this came out, a lot of people have discussed is hip hop going to have kind of a me too moment, so to speak, because there are a lot of artists, there are a lot of people who have been publicly accused of sexual misconduct. Haven't, they've kind of had their public reckoning, but hip hop has not even really, hasn't really had this moment in the same way that the movie industry has or the, you know, things like that. So this documentary follows one of hip hop's biggest pioneers, entrepreneurs, and music moguls, Russell Simmons. Who didn't want to be Russell Simmons? I mean, he had the foresight to cultivate what was in these clubs and in these streets in New York City and make it into like this business. The godfather of the whole damn thing. Everybody always looked at Russell as Def Jam, so that's a black label because the major labels was not touching us. Of course, he is like almost a household name at this point. He founded Def Jam, which is one of the most important hip hop record labels. He also managed Run DMC because Rev Run is his brother. And Run DMC is also one of the most legendary hip hop groups of all time from the 80s. They're from Hollis, Queens. Their Christmas album, that Christmas song, plays in my house every single year. And they had a ton of classic hip hop hits. So Russell Simmons kind of from there became a huge deal in hip hop. But in 2017, in light of the Me Too movement, a number of women started coming forward and accusing Russell Simmons of rape. I believe six women have accused him of rape. And that is a lot of people. One is a lot of people, but that is a lot of people. On the record follows Drew Dixon. She is kind of the jumping point for the whole story. And they use her to talk about her own personal experience, but they also interview other women and they also talk about hip hop history. It's really great. They like tie all these things into it. So Drew Dixon was like a former A&R executive at Def Jam. She is the daughter of one of the former DC mayors, Sharon Dixon, A, DMV, what up? So she it was super, super smart, wanted to work in the music industry since when she was younger. So then, you know, after college, she moved up to New York to work in music and ended up working at Def Jam doing a and I mean, I drove across the country to New York with a dream to make hip hop records. I mean, I, I can't even put into words how excited I was. A&R stands for Artists and Repertoire. They are responsible for a lot of like artist development and talent scouting. Well, you know, that's kind of what, yeah. But anyway, they do artist development. So basically you're taking artists and you're working with them on like figuring out how this song's gonna sound or like who you're gonna work with on this song or like just making sure your artist is straight. You're doing contracts, you're working with label, you're doing just all sorts of different things. So she did A&R at Def Jam and she did so many cool things. And this is like, she's in her early 20s at this point. Specifically, one song that really, really stood out to me that she worked on was Mary J. Blige and Method Man, You're All I Need. And 
and she just kind of put the two of them together on this track and she was like yeah I think it'd be really cool if like you rap this part and then she sang this part and then it would just sound really amazing and it did to this day when you hear that song you know that the people behind that had a vision the record won a Grammy I mean, literally, it's on Obama's mixtape of his favorite songs. And I'm like, <sighs> she also did the soundtrack to the hip hop documentary, The Show. Definitely recommend. So she gathered all of these great hip hop artists together to come together and make this soundtrack. You know, that was her. And that's the kind of great work that she was doing at Def Jam. Sounds great, right? Sounds amazing, right? She kind of just describes this culture that was really, really toxic for women to work in. Russell started off cool. Then he started kind of being inappropriate. Then he kept escalating it slowly, slowly slowly and she was like you know he was trying to break me down and kind of drop my defenses in a sense he'd come into the office and lock the door and try to kiss her whatever one time he came in and exposed himself and she kind of rationalized all of this by being like oh okay whatever i think it's also really important to think about like if you are at your job you're at literally your dream job and someone is doing something that is inappropriate consistently it's his company who is she gonna go to to tell about this one and two she describes you know not wanting to feel like she couldn't hang it was just like, oh, haha, yeah, whatever, you know, laughing it off and being like, okay. And I think a lot of times in situations like that, people don't really realize how serious things can get. It's hard. You don't know what something is until it is what it is. And also you can't victim blame and be like, well, why didn't she do such and such? Okay. She's at work. She's at work. Why didn't he not come in and expose himself to his coworker? How about that? You know, she describes what happened between them. And I don't want to give too many details on what happened. She was really, really traumatized by that, obviously. And the crazy part is she still had to go to work after this and she eventually ended up quitting she wrote her letter of resignation and just kind of put it in because at that point she was like you know I can't do this which is fucked up that she even needs to do that and it just kind of shows how the industry is tipped not in the favor of women because there you go dreams dashed because someone else didn't know how to act her story was really really tragic because she talks about how she went to work at a different record label eventually and she ended up working for LA Reid who is another huge record exec and she just kind of mentions in passing that he tried to come on to her as well and started being inappropriate and she ended up having to quit and ended up leaving the music industry because as far as she could see it was like well damn you know and mind you when she was working at Def Jam she had worked her way up she'd worked so hard to get to this point and she was at a point where she was an executive you know and that should be respected and her talent is what should be looked at but she described feeling really like a piece of meat and like she was very low on the totem pole and that she didn't matter and everything like that. And so this documentary tells her story years and years and years later as she decides to speak to reporters, as she decides to come out and be very vocal about what she experienced. The documentary also speaks with other women who were survivors of attacks and they describe their experiences as well, but they do a really good job of kind of bolstering her story. I like that they followed her and used her as kind of a jump off point. They went from, you know, they had a lot of archival footage. They went from her talking about what it was like working and what the hip hop industry was like at the time to kind of like her in the present day talking to reporters and her figuring out, okay, am I going to tell this story? What is it like? So when the Harvey Weinstein story started coming out, it was upsetting. I didn't know him, but it was so familiar. And I was so grateful that those women were being believed because I knew I could just feel my bones. Like, I know what that's like. She's watching all of this and feeling like she was really, really connecting with it a lot and feeling like, oh man, like I want to say something, but I don't know, you know, I don't know if I should speak up. And kind of the network of women who came out before her that gave her the strength to say, okay, I do want to stand up and I do want to 
want to tell my story, which I do think is really, really powerful. And the documentary does a really, really great job of conveying that. As usual, there is no narrator. There's just like amazing, amazing interviews with some really, really great women who are making great points. I think it's really interesting that she brings up how the Me Too movement affected her because she, she identifies as a black woman and she talks about feeling left out of the Me Too conversation in the sense that when it first happened, Me Too really, really started, you know, it was started by a black woman named Toronto Burke, first of all, but it was kind of, I don't want to say co-opted per se, but it was kind of whitewashed in terms of how it was covered in the media. And so a lot of people did not know that Toronto Burke was the person that started the hashtag Me Too way before the Me Too movement really happened. Me Too is a movement that was founded in 2006 to support survivors of sexual violence, in particular black and brown girls who were in the program that we were running. And there was a lot of white women coming forward. And that's when it became like a big thing of like, this is an issue in Hollywood. But I do remember feeling like this stuff happens to black women all the time, but that is not the focal point of the conversation. Why isn't that being talked about? Post Me Too felt very, very, very white. Something that's really interesting is talking about issues of sexual harassment and misconduct for black women. A lot of the experts they spoke to, which was part of what made this so great, really broke down how black women are seen in society and why Me Too seemed so white. White women are always, there's a stereotype of being like docile and sweet and innocent and pure. And if this docile and sweet and innocent pure could still get questioned and not believed and discounted, what do you think is happening to the black women in America when we come forward with stories about sexual violence? Black women historically are looked at much differently. We're looked at as much more coarse. We're looked at as tougher, you know, the strong black woman narrative. A lot of the stereotypes of black women that are historically found in media see us as either like desexualized and very aggressive and strong like <laughs> workers, or we're seen as very, very promiscuous and, you know, over-sexualized and things like that. There is a discourse that says that it's still like a cultural impossibility for black women to be raped. They um, use their sexuality as gold diggers. They use their sexuality as means of control. You really can't sexually abuse or rape a black woman because there's nothing that they wouldn't do. And a lot of that comes from slavery and from the slave trade. Drew Dixon gives this really, really powerful anecdote about how she went to Ghana and she went to one of the forts where they kept slaves when they were doing slave trading. And there was just an area where they would pick slave women to be taken away and raped. And then there was a room where they would put the black men who tried to fight back and save them. So just the intentional, cruel breakdown of the black male-female dynamic from the beginning. Angela Davis's book, Women, Race, and Class, which I'm reading right now actually, does a really, really good job of breaking down what the gender roles were in the times of slavery. And it was that black women were made to do the exact same work as black men. And we're out there doing the same things and enduring the same level of violence. Drew Dixon mentioned that as well as a lot of black women don't necessarily want to come out against certain men who have wronged them because within the black community, they're not treated very well. You know, you want to be loyal to your race because and you want to stand in solidarity. She said both with the hip hop movement and with black people, because historically, there's also been a lot of stereotypes about black men being over sexualized. We've talked in other episodes of the podcast about black men being seen as brutes and being seen as inherently violent. There's a long history. If you look at Emmett Till, the Scottsboro boys, black men being accused of raping white 
white women and then being lynched and then being attacked by white men for it. A lot of black women, she says, don't necessarily want to come out and say, okay, this man attacked me because they know that sometimes black people are going to be like, okay, well, how could you come for this black man when da 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 da? Where do black women lie in that conversation? You know, who's going to stick up for us then? This is added layer in the black community that we have to contend with of like, oh, you're going to put this before the race? Right? You're gonna put this because this you let this thing happen to you. Now we have to pay for it as a race. And, and then we're silenced even more. She gives examples of some other black women who were spoken out and who had spoken out and how they were treated. Anita Hill, who testified against Clarence Thomas in the 90s, and also Desiree Washington, who would accuse Mike Tyson of sexual assault. And people had come for her and had been like, well, why were you in his room? And why did you such and such and such and such? You know, a lot of victim blaming. And that, Drew said, is a big reason why she didn't want to come out. Why she didn't want to say anything about this man who was super popular in this black genre that had to fight so hard to go mainstream and he had to do all this work. So why would she come in and tear it down? So that is the kind of criticism she was facing and the things that all of these women were working against when they had to decide whether or not they were going to stand up and say something. One thing that this documentary does really, really well is that it doesn't just tell her story exactly. It weaves her story in with a lot of historical context. So, you know, I told you about like Black women within the Black community in the Me Too conversation, but it also talks a lot about actual hip hop history, which I think is really, really, really cool. And I love hip hop music and hip hop history. So I was like, wow, this is really dope. They incorporated a lot of history into it in terms of like how a lot of these record labels were founded, how a lot of these, where these acts came from and how you had people like Public Enemy coming out doing this like woke political rap and how it was, you know, becoming, sweeping a nation. It was this cool new thing. And that's why she wanted to work in it, which is amazing. But she also talks about how in the 90s, especially the industry was very, very male driven and it was very, very misogynistic. And that was just kind of expected. It was a boys club and you were kind of expected to just be cool and chill and just kind of hang with the boys and do whatever. One thing that always sticks out to me, this doesn't even have to do with the documentary, but it has to do with the conversation of hip hop being so male dominated. In 2018, when Kanye produced, he produced like a string of albums. It was like Pusha T, Nas, Tiana Taylor, um, Kid Cudi. They were doing all those album listenings and someone was giving a speech and they were like, yeah, like hip hop, blah, blah, we're here to celebrate hip hop. This was a genre made by black men. It was created by black men. And I was like, all right, damn, like I get it. I'm not faulting that person for saying that because sure, it is true. But women were also involved in hip hop. Black women were also involved. But that was interesting to me because it was something that always stuck with me. And it's been two years since that now. Until that mindset changes, Women and specifically black women in hip hop are not going to be center stage of the conversation. We're not going to be. We're still going to be an afterthought because that is how people see the genre. And when it comes to providing that context in the documentary around the hip hop industry, they brought up misogyny and lyrics, which is really a great conversation because I'm not going to lie to you. I listen to a lot of rap music. OK, I do. And I'd be lying if I said to you. I did not listen to artists who have lyrics that are demeaning to women. And I'm not proud of this at all. And nor am I saying that they should do that. According to Spotify, Future is one of my most listened to artists of all time. And Future is toxic. He literally has a song called My Collection. And the chorus is, And the time I got you, girl, you my possession. Even if I hit you once, you part of my collection. 
Yeah. And there's so many artists who are out there talking about bitches and hoes, this, whatever, whatever. It is really, really wild. It's not a new conversation, though, that we've been having. There's an old documentary called Beyond Beats and Rhymes, and it kind of talks about homophobia and misogyny in the hip hop industry and the history of that, which is very, very interesting. One of the disappointing things about Tip Drill and that whole genre of music videos is that they have taken a view of women of color that's not radically different from the views of 19th century white slaveholders. That is the only way in which women are presented. And so the only way in which men are allowed to make a connection in the popular culture with women is through sexuality, and it's only through their own desire. This documentary on the record talks about how when you're singing along to a lot of these songs, you're singing along to an ideology. Even if it's like, okay, you know, there was a tweet that was like, it's just music, big dog, which is true. It is just music. But for a lot of people, you might assume, okay, nobody actually thinks this. But then it's like, there are young, there are young boys who are, don't, you know, they haven't had interactions with women and this is all they know. And that is where they're learning about how to get girls. That's where they're learning about how to treat women. That's where they're getting the attitude that they walk around with from. When the scholars in, on the record are talking about, you know, you're singing along to an ideology, I was like, damn, that is true. Because I can say as much future as I listen to, as much rap music as I listen to, I listen to, and growing up, I listened to a range of music. So I have the context and the real world experience to be like, this is not how you treat women, you know, but not everybody does. Beyond Beats and Rhymes was an older documentary that talks about misogyny and homophobia and hip hop, like I was saying. They talk about how, you know, you have public enemy, you had all of these political, I guess you could say, rappers who were rapping about things that are going on. And in Beyond Beats and Rhymes, they talk about how in the 90s, so, you know, you had rappers like Easy e who in Boys in the Hood has some of the wildest lyrics I have ever heard. And I like that song, but I can only listen to the beginning of it because the rest of it is like... And he had Too Short, who makes great party music, which is catchy as hell. And I still listen to Too Short and he's from the Bay, whatever. But some of his lyrics are like, if I ever go broke, I just break hoes. Cause hoes were made to be broken. Okay, sir. All right, damn. Now I do want to point out, and they mention in On The Record as well, that hip hop did not start misogyny in music. There are plenty of rock songs, even though rock is also created by black people, just I know. There's all sorts of misogyny in every single genre. So I think when people attribute it only to rap music, that is 100% false. However, black women are consistently disrespected in hip hop lyrics. The amount of colorism in rap lyrics is crazy. It's crazy. That whole like, oh, you know, if it ain't foreign, it's boring. Talking about red bone this, yellow bone that. They're lyrics that straight up just you know, degrade darker skinned black women. And that is damaging. Whether people want to admit it or not, that is very, very damaging to people's psyche hearing that over and over again. It don't matter how catchy it is. In the documentary, they talk about how that's kind of the foundation of the genre. And you listen to that enough, you kind of get in that, you kind of get in that mood. And that's kind of the foundation for the genre and the foundation for the industry at the time. And so there's a misogyny in the lyrics. And then it's also being perpetrated by how people are acting in real life. But I think the documentary did a really, really good job of painting that whole picture and of using all these examples to be like, hey, let's also look at ourselves and what we're saying and just be mindful of that and how we treat women and how we treat people and how we treat black women specifically. It was really, really touching to hear Drew's story. It was really touching to see her connect with other survivors all together and be like, we're going to come out. We're going to tell our story. They had this whole expose in the New York Times about it, which was great. The New York Times reports the alleged assaults took place at Simmons' apartment in the 80s and the 90s. 
All three women say their music industry careers were derailed or ruined. You know, I think in a lot of these discussions about sexual misconduct, about the Me Too movement, we know that cancel culture isn't really a thing. People get upset and they're like, oh, you want to cancel so-and-so? And it's like, that person is probably doing just fine. They come out, they deny it, it's whatever. But like I said, I think it's important for people to be able to tell their story because even if the person isn't necessarily going to come out and admit the shit, it's good for some other person who may be going through something or who may have gone through something to hear other people's stories and to know, okay, I'm not alone. There are other people who have been through this and they're telling their story and they're being strong and I can be strong too. I was really moved by the strength of the women that I saw on screen and on the story. You know what I mean? There have been a lot of these types of documentaries that have come out in the last three years, two, three years. And this is hands down one of the best ones. It tells the story, but it does not necessarily, you know, Drew Dixon is more than that experience. All of those women are more than that experience, but they do a really great job of telling that story and it being inspiring. With that being said, I'm gonna have to give this a full five stars. Literally while watching this documentary, I was like, damn, this is a good documentary. This is good. Literally my only criticism would be that I would want it to be longer. Like I would love for it to be longer. If you watch the documentary Beyond Beats and Rhymes, if that could somehow be combined with this, that would be mother of all docs. I would have watched three hours of this documentary, which I know usually I'm like, this was too long, but no, this was not long enough. Maybe even six out of five, this doc was truly amazing and I would actually watch it over again. I feel like I learned so much. I loved hearing these women's stories and I just, I finished watching it and I was like, damn, I feel powerful which is really great. And that is exactly how a documentary should be moving you after you finish watching it. With that being said, five stars for On The Record. Thank you all so, so much for listening. Feel free to leave a comment if you liked, rate me on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. And thank you as usual so much for listening to this episode of 200 and Counting and I will see you on the next episode.